Well, we've been hearing a lot about hurricanes in the news these days from Texas to Florida. There have been some pretty massive storms, lots of damage out west. We've got earthquakes to contend with, which come with no notice. But with these hurricanes in the south, I guess you could say the only silver lining is they are warned about a week in advance. The storm is closely tracked and evacuation orders are given. Especially if you live in a low-lying area like floodplains by the coast or if you have a mobile home, when the order comes to evacuate, it should be a no-brainer to leave. Thousands are told in advance to flee their homes, get to safety. You can't stop the hurricane, but you can avoid loss of life by obeying the order to evacuate. What's amazing, though, is that every time, without fail, there are always hundreds, if not thousands, of people who refuse to evacuate. They don't follow the instructions. Studies have found that the longer someone has lived by the coast there, the less likely they are to evacuate, especially if they're, they've been there for 10 years or longer. They're probably just not going to leave. They, they believe they've lived through it before. They've seen the worst before. And like clockwork, after every hurricane, there are countless people in need of rescue. The floodwaters come, they get trapped in their home, now they're stuck on their roof, or worse yet, they, they never make it out of their home. Back with Hurricane Katrina, over 1,200 people died, most of whom had refused to evacuate. Drowning in your home is not the only danger. Officials also order evacuation because they know it, it may take days for the waters to recede, and you could be trapped in your home for days with no help. For someone with a medical condition, like a diabetic, they're going to be in real trouble. And for those who do try and venture out on their own, down power lines, floating debris pose a real hazard. And perhaps the greatest threat after the fact is, is the water itself. The water becomes an extremely toxic soup of debris and chemicals and bacteria. After Katrina, the water itself became so toxic that if you were exposed to it and you weren't treated, that alone could kill you. Needless to say, these evacuation orders, they come for good reason. Homes can be replaced, but lives can't. But these orders, they only do good if, if they're obeyed, if they're followed. People have to follow the instructions. It, it might be a hassle, it might be a real pain, but, but it's for their good. These instructions are given with their best interests in mind. And it's here that we see a parallel to the instructions of Scripture. What is the Bible? In large part, it contains the authoritative instructions for mankind. Here is God, the creator God's revealed will for you. This is what he, he wants you to do. And he reveals his will for our good, our benefit, even our salvation. We're talking eternal life here. And God has revealed his will that we might have life and avoid peril. So I would say these are some important instructions, but they only do you good if you listen to them. You've got to heed what God has written and put it into practice. God's ways really are best. He's showing us the way to, to a blessed life, life of peace. But you, you, have, you have to go. You have to obey. You have to follow what he says. For example, King David knew full well that God's word says adultery is wrong. That it leads to terrible things, hardship, distress, suffering. But his flesh deceived him, so he took Bathsheba, and what was the result? Immeasurable suffering, pain, hardship. He knew no peace. 
See, it's, it's not enough just to know God's will. You, you have to do God's will. You have to actually o- obey. And so it goes for all of us regarding all of God's commands. God has revealed his will in Scripture, not as a burden, but as a blessing. It's not like God is trying to keep us from enjoying life. And to the contrary, God knows that sin leads only to the grave. That his ways are are best. They lead to life and peace and blessing. But only to those who actually listen. You have to listen to him. There will always be those who receive God's warnings and instructions, but refuse to heed them, like those who refuse to heed the evacuation order. But I hope you learn to not be among them when the flood comes. If I can just labor this introduction a bit more, turn with me to to Matthew 7, if you would. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. This takes us to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I know this is very familiar Instruction, this is a passage I know, we quote it all the time. But it's for good reason, because you have Christ himself giving such clear teaching on the way of the Lord. Starting in verses 13 and 14, Jesus builds this contrast between two ways, two gates, two destinations. There's a narrow way with a narrow gate that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There's a, a broad way with a broad gate that leads to destruction, and there are many who find it. It's such a clear contrast. And to continue this contrast between these two ways, he talks about two types of trees with two kinds of fruit. I, I know you know this, but just humor me. Read verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Now, I'm, I know we've, we've heard this one a million times, but it still stands that, that when you hear it, you should just ask, am I bearing good fruit? Am I one of those who is bearing good fruit? Does your life reflect the fruit of righteousness? For, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Notice, bearing good fruit doesn't make you a good tree. This isn't salvation by works. Rather, bearing good fruit, that merely displays that you are a good tree that you've been made a good tree. This is the necessary result of the new birth, that you bear the fruit of righteousness. You were a bad tree, lost in sin. You were on that that broad path of destruction, going your own way, the way of destruction. But God, by grace, working through your faith in Christ, he forgave you of your sins and transformed you into a good tree, and then he put you on this narrow path, leading life. And if that's true for you, now you're going to bear good fruit. Why? It's just what good trees do. Good trees, that they just by nature bear good fruit. And you, if you're in Christ, you've been given a new nature, and so you too will will bear this fruit. And so the presence of this fruit, which is to say righteousness, it's very telling of someone's faith 
or lack thereof. It is a lack of such fruit that reveals one's faith as false. Verse 21, another very familiar passage, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And when you look at this verse, you have to remember what Jesus was just saying about the tree and its fruits. Because you look at the end of verse 21, and Jesus says, He who does the will of my Father will enter. And you might wonder, like, hey, is Jesus teaching some sort of salvation by works here? Like, only the the doers get into heaven? But, But what did he just say? The whole Sermon on the Mount is about what kingdom citizens look like. What does a kingdom citizen look like? Well, what did we just see? What characterizes those who will inherit the kingdom? Verse 16, they bear good fruit. Verse 21, they they do the will of God. Like before, doing the will of God doesn't get you into heaven, just like bearing this fruit doesn't get you into heaven. Rather, the one who obeys displays that they're on the narrow way. The point is, true believers are not those who merely call Jesus Lord, Lord. In a sense, that's easy. But in addition, they actually live like Christ is truly their Lord. They do the will of God. They they are actually following Christ by faith and doing the will of God. False believers, however, do not. Hence, verse 22, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Notice that for these false believers here, none of these works that they claimed are actually good fruit. None of these things are actually ever commanded in Scripture as a sign of righteousness or a fruit of righteousness. It's not like they were saying, Lord, Lord, did we not love our neighbor as ourself? It's not the picture here. They're just religious people. But they were busy doing something. It just wasn't righteousness. They were practicing, he says, living in what? Lawlessness. They were living outside of the will of God, revealing their false faith. What's interesting here is these people knew a lot about Jesus. They seemingly had plenty of head knowledge. Today, I think we would call them churched. They spoke Christianese. They said the right things. But even though they had a lot of the right knowledge, it never translated into right living, which exposed their profession of faith as false. You can't automatically confuse a profession of faith with possession of faith. And their lack of fruit exposed their profession as false. Now finally, look at verse 24. This is really where I was trying to get. If some context helps. Notice though in verse 24, the key transitional word, therefore. So just keep in mind what, what we just talked about. And he says, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. We see now what, clearly what Jesus has been getting at. 
acting on the word. Not just hearing it, not just knowing it, but acting on it. Good trees act on the word. And so verse 24 again, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. I hope you can see now the point Christ is making and really the the entire ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Two ways, two gates, two destinations, two trees, two fruits, two builders, two foundations, two results. And what's the difference between all of these contrasts that the Christ is, is building? Notice both sets of people and all of these contrasts, both of them heard the word. Both sets here. These are all people who have professed faith. They've heard the word. They've received the word. The difference comes down to acting it out, living it out, obeying. The difference is hearing the word and then acting on the word. It's not that acting on the word saves you. Only faith saves. But what does true faith do? It acts on the word. And so we have developed by the Lord himself the necessity of what? Of obedience, of discipline, of living out your faith, of practicing what you preach. Right living cannot be divorced from right thinking, right belief. Although we do preach salvation by faith alone, right living can never be left out of this equation. Christ taught this crystal clearly here. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul now add his own two cents in our passage for this morning. So now you can turn over to Philippians chapter 4, our text for this morning. An extended introduction, yes. But now we are really near the end of this short epistle. That said, we've, we've been taking our time. We're, we're in no rush to hurry past this teaching. Especially here at the end, Paul rattles off some key admonitions for Christian living, for spiritual stability. Like Jesus taught, when the storm comes and the flood rises, some houses stand, some fall. We've seen literal pictures of that in the news the past two weeks. Of course, in the context, Jesus is really talking about professing believers. Some last, some don't. Some finish the race, some wash out. And I trust that you want to be among those who finish the course. Well, here's the thing. The storm's coming. It's just a matter of time. Suffering, hardship, persecution, loss. It's all going to come. But if your faith is not built on the truth, you're not going to stand. Your faith will fall. But here, notice, we don't mean truth abstractly. We mean truth in action. You have to live all this stuff out. Spiritual stability comes from putting the the truth of God's word into action and and actually living like it's true. (laughs) Living like you actually believe this. 
This was Paul's primary concern for the Philippians. It wasn't doctrine. Philippians, it's not a heavy doctrinal letter like Romans or 1 Corinthians. The Philippians, they were mostly squared away when it comes to, to doctrine. But he was concerned with their spiritual stability, wanting them to press on in living out the gospel. And so it's a very practical letter, much needed for today. And again, especially at the end, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we've been taking an extended look at this passage. We find Paul give, you could say, like a recipe for spiritual stability. And over many weeks, that's what we've been studying. Basically, how to stand firm in the Lord. How to stand firm in the Lord. We found several ways already. Be harmonious, be joyful, be gracious, be prayerful, be thoughtful. And today we, we finish off this list with the last of these ways to stand firm in the Lord. Coming from verse 9. And it is to be practical. Which literally just means put all this into practice. You have to actually practice these things. Otherwise it's all for naught. Picture the, the chain on an anchor. right? Like we're the boat. God's the ground. We need to be firmly anchored in him. If we are to, to stand firm and not be adrift. But... What good would an anchor be if the last link in that chain were missing? No good at all. It's entirely worthless. If it's missing that last link, it does no good. Well, Paul, it's like he's finishing this list, and this is the last link in the chain. And in many respects, it's the most important one. It's all about now just putting everything else that you've learned into practice. I know this is a it's, a it's a super short and simple verse, just one verse today, verse 9. But at the same time, it, it's worth all of our time to really reflect on and, and put into practice because it's without this, you have no spiritual stability. Without this lesson from this last verse in, in this section here, you will miss everything else. So let's give this verse our time now. Technically, if, if you're a note taker, this, this is technically number six in, in these ways of standing firm over many weeks here. Be practical. Be practical. And it comes from verse nine. Let's read that now. Philippians four and look down at verse nine. He says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Be practical. What does it mean to be practical? Well, a, a few definitions. Practical, disposed to action as opposed to speculation. Practical, designed to supplement theoretical training by experience. It's pretty much be a doer and not just a hearer. Well, we'll come back to that thought. Verse 9 is, is centered on this one basic admonition. There's, there's one central command here practice these things practice these things in greek and, and even in the english it's clear it's not talking about a one-time thing here this is a continual command a habitual action an ongoing lifestyle of practicing these things you've heard the term practice makes perfect in a way we could say practice makes christ-like you don't learn piano after one day of practice. You have to play it 
continually to excel. And even then, you can't stop or you'll regress. You've got to keep up on it. And likewise, it's not enough to practice Christianity for a day or or even a year as if after that you've got it down. This is a continual, lifelong pursuit. And even if you grow great in knowledge, you've memorized a systematic theology, that the daily practice never ends. And if you do stop, you will regress. It's like a train slowly chugging up a hill. You've got to constantly exert effort to keep going up, to ascend, to grow. And once you stop, though, not long after, you're going to start sliding backwards. So keep up your pursuit of Christ continually. Diligently discipline yourself to live in all his ways. I don't think any of us have a problem with the concept of discipline applied to school or, or work or sports or finances. If you want to excel in these areas, intentional discipline pursuit <clears throat> is required. I mean, can you think of any 4.0 students who really excel without discipline? Or can you think of an athlete who makes it to his or her top of the game without discipline? Or finances. I guess a few people maybe win the lotto who aren't very disciplined, but those are the people who lose all the money after. Discipline is just required to excel. But some people, they have a problem associating such discipline with the Christian life. Any talk of discipline evokes legalism and they just reject it. And they might say, look, we're under grace, not law, right? So everything has to be by grace. I'm just going to let go, let God. If God wants me to grow, he'll make me grow. And that's it. But this really is a false dichotomy between grace and effort. Of course we're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. But what do you make with all the verses where God himself calls us to participate in our sanctification? His grace abounds for this, but he also tells us that we're not going to grow apart from effort. Discipline is still required. You know, discipline, it's actually commanded. Listen to 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, where Paul there says, discipline yourself. That's a command. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying it's okay if you want to be a bodybuilder or a fitness freak. It's okay, but it's only of little profit. Rather, working hard at godliness, exerting spiritual sweat, that's much more profitable because it will benefit you in this life and the life to come. So just think of all the discipline that the bodybuilder puts in to to getting into shape. The dieting restrictions, early to bed, early to rise, hours at the gym, intense labor, self-denial. In a similar way, discipline yourself to pursue Christ. And just to get you know even more practical with this, which after all that's what this whole sermon is about. And let's say you have difficulty being engaged at church on Sunday morning, even staying awake. 
Maybe it has something to do with the fact that you're staying up till two or three on Saturday nights. I dealt with this a lot back when I was a college pastor. And I would always tell them, you know, Sunday morning begins on Saturday night. And so how about you discipline yourself to get to bed early on Saturday night, that you're fully rested and fully present to engage in worshiping God with his people come Sunday morning. So that's discipline. That's what we're talking about. Or maybe you're committed to the Wednesday night Bible study. You know it's for your good. It it builds you up. You need that. You should be there. But come fall, a brand new show is on, and you really want to watch it, and it's the same time slot as the Wednesday night Bible study. And in the past, you were the type of person who would flake out on a Bible study for that favorite show. But how about you discipline yourself, make a little sacrifice in your time, and commit to the things of the Lord for your good. That's discipline. That's, that's what we're talking about here. This largely involves just saying yes to the right things, saying no to the wrong things. We all are the product of our choices. And you have a choice to make. Make the right choices. Discipline yourself. And see how this has nothing to do with legalism. We're not trying to gain merit before God or create some list of rules that all Christians must obey to, to be sanctified or holy. This is just you controlling yourself. Notice it says discipline yourself, not others. You controlling yourself and denying your own flesh to help you follow through on your own commitment to seek and serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just like we learned back in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, Paul, he already settled this back in chapter 2, right? I mean, just for the sake of review, just flip the page back and look at verse 12 and 13 again. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hopefully this jogs your memory and this is all clicking for you. He says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. You do that by, by God's grace, God's power, which have already been made to flow within you. And so now your, your call is just to, to live it out, to, to work it out, to live like you actually believe this stuff is, is all true. And you are to do that even when no one's watching. Paul wanted to make sure these Philippians were diligent in their pursuit of the Lord even when he wasn't there keeping an eye on him. Have you ever had a a personal trainer? The power of a personal trainer is simply that you've got someone constantly looking over your shoulder. They're telling you what to do. They're pushing you. They're encouraging you, correcting you, keeping your diet in check. They're keeping you accountable, and it helps you grow. Well, just imagine you go to the gym, and your trainer is sick that week, so you're there by yourself. Would you be prone to just slack off a little bit? Just take this week a little easy and just go light, go slow. You probably would. Your intensity just seems to drop when you don't have that other person there breathing down your neck. This is the power of accountability, but at the same time, you also have to learn yourself, or learn rather, to discipline yourself when when no one's around, when you're alone. Let me throw another familiar verse at you 
Again, this is, this is essentially a one-point sermon. You need to be practical. You need to live out everything you believe. And I just want to pile on verses to build conviction. So listen to 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. <clears throat> Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified. You know, what's interesting here is in all these passages, athletic imagery keeps coming up. And I think for obvious reasons, it's just a point of contact we all get. We all know what the athlete looks like, what they do, what it takes to to win a race. They're characterized by intentionality and intensity. And the point is, we are to pursue Christ the same way, with intentionality and and intensity. You need to pursue Christ intentionally, exercising, like he says, self-control in all things, disciplining your body. Why? So you're not a hypocrite. You should feel compelled to practice what you preach, lest you be disqualified from the race, like he says. It's easy to confess truth, sign off on a doctrinal statement, check all the right boxes. I mean, that that's easy. But then you got to live it out. That's the hard part. Self-control is required. Intentionality is required. Discipline is required. Do those words characterize your Christian life right now or not? And if they don't, well, this is your opportunity to change. The professional athlete, they always make it look easy when they run that 100-yard dash and make it look so effortless. But it's not. In reality, it's not effortless. In reality, their ability comes by years of training and discipline. And so it goes with Christians. You might see that mature believer, and they make it look so easy, this Christian life. It's like they they never doubt, they're never depressed, they never worry, they're always joyful, they always rightly respond to trials, they just seem so godly, they know a lot of doctrine. It's like they have it all figured out, they make it look effortless. But it's not. Behind all such people, you will find a life of spiritual discipline and diligence and dedication. You'll find a person who has intentionally studied the scriptures, read, memorized the scriptures for their growth, and who has purposely committed themselves to pray, to worship, to fellowship, and so forth. You do the same. It doesn't just happen automatically. You are called to strive. Many believe Winston Churchill was the greatest orator or speaker of the 20th century. His famous speeches rallied the Allies during World War II, and people were amazed how he could give these just eloquent speeches off the top of his head. But Churchill had a secret. Most of his speeches were not impromptu. They actually, although it appeared that way, they were very much rehearsed beforehand. Churchill early on had a lisp, And he was ridiculed. 
So he committed himself to write out all of his speeches, and then he would practice them for hours in front of a mirror to give the appearance that this was all just coming off the top of his head. He would even choreograph pauses and pretended fumblings in his speech as if he was just coming up with something, all to give the appearance that this is just an impromptu speaker. He wasn't a natural, but he appeared that way. And over time, he, he became, you might call it, a natural, but in reality, it's just hard work. And you realize, in Christianity, no one is a natural. No one's a natural. Behind every great believer who does great things for the Lord, you will find, of course, God's great grace, but you will find God's grace working through their discipline and diligence. You might resent the natural Some people just are born with a more athletic body or a higher IQ. But no one is naturally a mature Christian. They grow into a mature believer, and that comes through time and diligence and discipline. In all the means of grace, the Lord has given. He's given us what we need. You have the Spirit within you. Philippians 2.13, His power is already working in you. Now you must grow. So if you find yourself flailing, lagging behind, not growing, even declining, if you're struggling with sin and losing, I would safely say you you are probably not pursuing spiritual discipline. The word, prayer, church, fellowship, preaching, praise, Lord's Supper, and more. These are all means of grace the Lord has given to make you more like Christ. But you must diligently partake. Well, back to Philippians 4, 9. Like I said, there's, there's no other outline today. We're just trying to hammer and hammer this one point. You need to be practical, which is to say you have to live out all that you believe, all that you've learned. That's Paul's message. Practice these things. Now, you might hear that and say, well, what things exactly? Practice these things. What things? Well, look back at verse 9 of Philippians 4. He tells us He says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So Paul gives a a four-pack of terms to explain what he means, what we should practice. But really, we don't need to, to pick them apart all that much. Collectively, his point is, practice everything. All teaching, all doctrine, everything you've learned, everything you've seen modeled in following Christ, practice all that. That's the point. The church is called to put into practice the the entire way of Christ, to walk in that way, which was passed down by the apostles. Remember the early church, as they got together, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were the men God used to pass down this new revelation of truth. And today we we have the inspired record of that teaching. And so that's what we're talking about. The things that we we don't see in Paul, but we see it in Scripture that has been passed down. We're to practice basically all of that. So how well do you do that? Do you apply what you learn? I mean, church today, we're, we're not all that different. We gather and we are devoting ourselves, among other things, to the apostles' teaching, which we have now in the inspired and written word of God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And we're called to put this all into practice. So how well do you do that? 
just just think about this. Think back. If you've been with us for almost this entire year, we've been in the book of Philippians. We've learned many lessons. Let me read back some of the, the key lessons we've learned in Philippians so far. See if these ring a bell. Give thanks for other Christians. Pray for other Christians. Take joy in the advance of the gospel. Treasure Christ in your life. Rightly respond to suffering. Strive for unity. Share in Christ's humility. Work out your salvation. Don't be a complainer, but a rejoicer. Follow godly examples. And lately, how to run the Christian race and how to stand firm. These are just some of the kind of the bullet point main lessons we've learned in Philippians. I hope they ring a bell. But first, I would ask you this. Have you even disciplined yourself enough to be consistently present at church that you might sit under the progressive and continual teaching of God's word? That you've just committed yourself, no distractions, okay, football, record it, whatever else is going on. As for me and my family, Sunday morning, we're here. Sickness, vacation, fine, but you're disciplining yourself to be with the saints because you know it's for your good. That God has given this as a means of grace to, to know him, to worship corporately. You can't do that by yourself. This corporate worship, the sitting under the preaching of the word. So first, are you even disciplined to, to be under the ministry of the word? And then secondly, are you diligent in applying all that you hear? Are you a hearer only who forgets the Sunday sermon by lunch? Or do you intentionally make an effort to reflect on what you've learned from God's word and then just bring your life into accordance with it? We all stumble. We all fall short. But are you at least being intentional with it? At the very least, I'll say this. I hope you apply today's sermon. Because this sermon is all about applying what you hear. So if you don't apply this one, you're really in trouble. But also, you know, just think for a second. I thought about this. How many sermons... Have you heard your entire life? Let's say let's say you're a pretty faithful Christian. You get maybe 45 a year, right? Over 10 years, 450. Over 20 years, almost 1,000. You throw in some Wednesday night Bible studies, some Sunday night Bible studies. That number doubles, triples for some of you. Have you heard 2,000 messages, 3,000? Some of you have been in the church for 50 years, 5,000. 10,000 messages or Bible studies. I bet some of you have that many. Scripture tells us that God holds people accountable to the light that they have received. Well, you've received a lot of light. You've you've had the privilege of hearing the Word of God preached for for a long time. You know lots of stuff. That also means you are highly accountable for all that you've heard. So are you living it out? Does it reflect in your life? Are you maturing? Again, we, we all stumble, and we will in many ways, but are you intentional in your pursuit of Christ? Now I would challenge you, even starting today, to form a new habit, being intentional after the Sunday morning sermon, maybe Sunday at lunch. You purpose yourselves to, to talk about what you've learned, to reflect on what you've learned, to seek to apply what you've learned. Maybe even start taking sermon notes. Not as a ritual. It doesn't make you more righteous. Just a simple tool, a way to be intentional, to remember key truths that you can then go over and apply. 
This is all part of spiritual discipline. You're not just warming a pew here. They don't mind being cold. This is not just a tradition we have that we we gather, just something we do. We sit under the ministry of the word so much here at this church because we really believe it's, it's living, it's active, it's powerful. This is God's primary means he's given through the spirit to, to change us, to change lives, to conform us to Christ. So you have to engage. You have to engage in it. And speaking of the ministry of the word, everything we're trying to say here, everything Paul is trying to say, I think is just simply put best by James. So to wrap it up, let me just quote for you James 1. Another verse I guarantee most of you know. James 1.22, he says, Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. We all know it. You know, be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer of the word. To receive or accept the word implanted, he said before, it is to do the word. And notice it's not just a one-time thing. This is be a doer, someone who's continually <clears throat> living out and practicing the word, what they hear, what they preach. There's nothing wrong with listening, of course. The problem is not with hearing or listening. The problem, with, the problem is with only hearing, only listening. You need to make sure you practice also what you preach or what you hear preached. Luke 11:28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The blessing is not just for those who hear. You're not blessed only for hearing. You're blessed for hearing and then, and then obeying, which means you believe it and you live it out. Those who merely hear, they tread on dangerous ground. For James says they have deluded themselves. This word can also be translated as deceive. And it's used to describe false teachers. And this really brings us back full circle with what we learned at the beginning from Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. False teachers and false believers, they are deceived. They're deluded. In what? In thinking they can truly know God without actually following God. In thinking they can call Jesus Lord without actually living like he's the Lord of your life. Which means, by the way, you do what he says. Hopefully because you want to. You see his ways are best. But the house built on sand will fall, and great is its fall. You rather be the doer. And as you do, God will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. And that's how Paul finishes this verse. Just to finish, look at Philippians 4, 9, one last time. He says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God promises his presence, his fellowship, his peace to those who practice his will. You might remember back in Philippians 4, 6 and 7, those verses about, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything pray. Then he says, and if you do that, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I think this is intentional, this little, this little couplet here. 
Verse 7, you pray, you get the peace of God. Verse 9, you practice, you get the God of peace. The peace of God, the God of peace, they're yours as you walk in his will. And I trust that's what you want. Perfect peace, assurance, confidence before God. Well, do what is right. Live in his will. And you'll have that peace. Paul made that point over in Romans 13. That, you know, those, it's those who do what is wrong, they have reason to be afraid. Constantly looking over their shoulder, wondering when they're going to get caught, when they're going to get punished. But he says in Romans 13:3, Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. He said that of human government, but it's equally true of God's authority. Do you want to live in peace under God, not fearing if, if, he, if he doesn't love you or doubting, wondering if, if you're in his will? Just, just do what is right. Live in his will as revealed in Scripture and then enjoy perfect peace before him, knowing with confidence he smiles upon you because you are walking according to his ways. If you heed his will, you need not live in fear. God is light. And if you are walking in the light, you can be confident you're walking with God and that he's with you. And if God is with you, you will stand firm. And that's what this really is all about, standing firm. This is how you do it. When hard, hard times come or trying times or tempting times, you will stand firm as you walk in God's truth and then live it out. We've learned a lot from the Apostle Paul. It's just in these few verses about how to stand firm in the face of life's difficulties. Be harmonious, be joyful, be gracious, be prayerful, be thoughtful. We have enough. You've learned enough. If you've been with us, you've learned enough to know what to do, how to stand firm. The, the word leaves us thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16 says. So this is how to do it. How do you stand firm in the Lord? Here's how. You've learned how. You have sufficient knowledge and instruction. But we could say, humanly speaking, now it's, it's up to you. You must work. We need, we need God's grace. God's grace is sufficient. But in reality, it's already been given to you through the indwelling spirit. You already have the grace, the strength, the power you need. Now you have the equipping, the instruction, the teaching. What's left? Be practical. Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Well, let me lead you with, or leave you rather with Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, which says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of our souls, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our great Father in heaven, we, we do give you the glory this morning for the great work you have already done through Jesus Christ our Lord in sending him to die on the cross to pay for our sins, to give us the gift of righteousness that now you might call us to a new way. Lord, through Christ, by grace, in our faith, we can be transformed. We can be made new. Turn from the, the broad path to the narrow path. 
transformed from being a, a bad tree to being a, a good tree. This is, this is, that is your exclusive work that we receive purely by your grace, and, and we praise you for that work. Lord, but now in, in doing that work, you, you equip us, you gift us, that now we would get to work in pursuing Christ, in working out our salvation, in becoming more like Christ, in honoring you as we love you and love one another. And I pray this morning you, just, you build that conviction. We, we know this. I, I take it we've learned nothing new even. You call us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So just, just bring this conviction to our hearts this morning, Lord, and let it produce real change. For some people who have maybe some bad habits this morning, even sin habits, I pray you would convict them that enough is enough and that they would change by the power of the Spirit and would be renewed. Give them discipline to control themselves, their bodies, their time, and to use it for good. The days are evil. Time is short. We are called to maximize our effort in, in, in seeking and serving you, Lord. This is all only for our good. This is for our blessing and our benefit. And in that you are glorified, Lord. I pray we would now just take these things seriously to heart and live them out, to practice these things. And resting in the joy that, that comes from knowing the God of peace is with us. You are with us. That's all we need. We will stand firm and, and finish this course. Be with us, Lord, and we will be with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.